so the question is, how do you talk about uh, Hashem with a friend when when the when the friend isn't no, open to hearing it, or no, what's no, no, it? No, this, okay, no, the time yeah. for yourself just understand, yeah. trying to understand God and have a yeah. concept, kind of when you're speaking to Him yourself, right. maybe of right. like what exactly, you know? You know what I mean? Like I feel like there's just so little that I can really understand about. I just want to make sure I'm understanding. In terms yeah. of in terms of relating to your friend, though. No, no, no. You're just talking about yourself. Yeah. Aha. Uh-huh, okay. No, so. No, so. No, I just think talking about law and shabbos is on my mind, but no, not that it doesn't have to do necessarily with the friend. Forget the friend. <laughs> okay, start from the beginning. What's the question? No, you are making sense, but I got, I got, it's like, you know, sometimes, sometimes in a, uh, sometimes in a mystery, they have something called a red herring, where I got thrown by the word friend, so, yeah, yeah, how do we understand what Hashem is, right, so beyond, I feel like, you know, we say like, really, God is so much about Hashem, I feel like a child, like, child only has very limited understanding, awareness of what's going on, So what is God? What is God? Who is God? What is God? Who is God? Right, right, right. Okay, yeah. Well, that's a big question. So, so basically, basically, the the, the short answer is is that Hashem is is beyond us and is unknowable and is infinite and we're finite. However, so so in other words, he he is. And will remain mysterious, and um, that's an aspect of his infinity, because we're finite and he's infinite. So, um, and in fact, how far does this go? You know, if if I can grab the sitter, I'll show you. The the angels. Well, I'll just sort of paraphrase it. The the angels say, um, "Where is the place of his glory?" Which means that the angels themselves, who have a infinitely higher revelation of godliness than we do, are saying, where is the seed of his glory? Which means that even they don't fully grasp Hashem. So in other words, that should make us feel better to a certain extent that if the angels are not fully grasping Hashem, how can we fully grasp Hashem, right? So, 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 so on the one hand, he's completely unknowable. On the other hand, on the other hand he makes himself knowable in, in, in a certain in, in two major ways. One is the Torah, because God allows His will to be understood. And you have to understand that, like the Zohar, for instance, says that God and the Torah are one. So you can know God through the Torah. Now, does that mean that God equals the Torah? No. But God put His will in the Torah. So what does that mean exactly? So, for instance... You know, boy, this is um, <laughs> it's probably a terrible, terrible example, but it pops into my head. You know, imagine if you're putting a, um, a, uh, a, an ad in the personals page, right? And you want to describe yourself, you know? And you describe what you're looking for and, and what you want and who you are and everything like that. That description of yourself... It's not you. You're not the four lines in the back of a newspaper, right? But if you actually were able to nail it in a way, like really to communicate your essence, then that's, that is what, that is in, in a way, in a, you know, this is obviously extremely inexact, but in a way that is what the Torah is. And in fact, now that I think about it, there's actually a support from the Gomorrah to what I'm saying, um, which is that the word anochi and I'm not enough of a scholar to rattle it off the top of my off the, off the tip of my tongue, but it's Anochi is an acrostic, the sages say, which is the um, Anochi, just so you know, means the word I, and it's the first word of the Ten Commandments, and which contains the entire Torah, right? So, Anochi is a very crucial word, since that in itself, if the whole Ten Commandments are a microcosm of the whole Torah, 
They say even the word I is a microcosm of the whole Ten Commandments. Okay, so Anochi really is, because Hashem is talking about Himself, I, that, that's a key word. It's an acrostic, which means I have put my essence in this. Okay? So, in other words, one's will, what one desires, is very close to what one's essence is. Okay? So the Torah is one with Hashem in that it's an expression of His innermost self. Now, of course, the Torah is functioning on so many different levels and we can only grasp part of it. So just like God is infinite, so is the Torah infinite. You know, one of the things that I was saying to my son just the other day, and, you know, I felt like he was getting it because his eyes were sort of widening. I said, the Torah is not a book. It's not, it's bigger than the whole world. It's just, these are some of the letters of the Torah. It's bigger than the whole world. And it seemed like he was getting part of that somehow, you know. But anyway, anyway. So, but, but now, so that's number one. Through the Torah, you can know God. Um, good morning, good morning. Good morning. The, the, another aspect of how you can know God is there are certain um, metaphors that are used, that the sages have used, that the prophets have used, and, and, and there's a variety of them. Father, king, mother, believe it or not. I can't quote you the source, but I know mother is used for God as well uh, in the Torah. So, father, king, mother, master... Friend. Okay? That's from Mishle. It says, don't, don't, uh, uh, don't, don't cast aside your friend and the friend of your fathers. And, it's, and the sages explain that that's referring to who's the friend? Hashem. So, so, even, so, so in other words, in these type of relationships, God also manifests himself. Okay? So, so anyway, it's, And he is the one who, um, who brings the world and, of course, you into existence every single moment and sustains that, that, that existence, you and the entire world. So, life giver as well. So, um, and also... Um, don't forget that, that your neshama is a piece of him as well. So, so, so he's put himself in you, you know, in all of us. So that's... So partner in, you know, because, because um, from Shir Shirim, it's also lover. It's not just father, mother, friend, master, king. It's also lover. You know, so that's, these are all different, different ways of understanding who he is, how he, see, because, because all of those expressions have been handed us to through the prophets and through sages, that means that God himself has asked to be viewed in that way. In other words, those are God approved, those are God approved, um, you know, Images, if you will. So that means God has invited us to view Him in that way. Okay? So, um, so that's meaningful um, because if you want to be, I think you, I don't know if you use the word sophisticated or if that's what I heard. If one wants to have a more um, sophisticated understanding of God, one also has to understand that there's... Um, there's a bit of a kaleidoscope effect going on. I think everyone knows what a kaleidoscope is. It's, it's, it's like a children's toy, but then every once in a while you go to like a, a museum gift shop and you see like there's really arty ones, you know, where you, where you, it's like a telescope with all this sort of like stained glass that's kind of crushed and made into like mosaic tiles. And then you turn it and it shifts and all the different pieces turn around and it makes new and more amazing pictures as you turn it. So, so life, you know, it's funny, I gave a talk last week. I, I, I called it in the end, um, who will guarantee that our hearts will remain pure? And, and the idea is that um, our hearts are also like a kaleidoscope because our hearts are always turning. 
And they're always making different shapes and patterns. And maintaining that our heart stays in a good place, that's, that's, that's something very important. Of course, the, the answer that the Gomorrah gives is that we said we will be the guarantors that our hearts will remain pure. But we made a mistake. We should have said, God, you guarantee that our hearts remain pure. And of course, it's, it's deeper than that. But if you want to hear the talk, you can, you can look it up. But anyway, the point is that, um, the point is that uh, life is constantly shifting. And it's giving us, you know, thank you. Now, now I got the job. I got the job. Oh, now I lost the job. I lost the job. Now I got the guy or the girl. Now I lost the guy or the girl. Or now I'm marrying the guy or the girl. Or now, um, you, know, you know, this one's born. That one's passed. You know, all, this is life. It's a kaleidoscope. It's changing. It's changing. It's changing. So it's God as master. God as king. God as lover. God as friend. And you have to pick the appropriate prism based on life's circumstance to understand how he is reaching out to you and how he is inviting you to view him and to view um, yourself and to view your obligations in the moment. Okay, so all of these things are, are, are shifting and evolving. And if you have the right, um, if you have the right um, level of understanding, then you, then, you, then, then you know how to make the most out of the moment. Is that, does that be... Does that help at all? Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's still, it's still so beyond, but that is helpful. Right. Well, the thing is, is that it should, it should feel beyond. Right. Because, the, because the, the, the problem is, is that when you know God too well, then you already are misunderstanding Him. Because God is, in fact, you know, th- there's a, a, a famous story, I, I, I've forgotten the name of the Rebbe, but, but, but basically, the, the Rebbe said, listen, if I don't want to worship a God that I understand, because if I fully understand Him, what am I worshiping Him for? You know, because then what's the difference between God and me? You know, so if God isn't beyond me, then there's a real problem. There's a real problem. So, um, you know, we mentioned it last week, the, the idea that life is not random. Life is mysterious. There's a very big difference between those two things. Life is not random at all. But it is mysterious. And you know what? That's okay. It should be mysterious. It should be mysterious because that's an expression of the infinity of God. You see, the, the, the rationalists, the secularists, the non-believers, whatever, however, whatever term you want to use... Um, or, or as they like to call themselves in, in heavy ironic quotations, um, I, ironic is provided for me by me, um, in the enlightened, right? <laughs> they, they want to suggest that, that, that the entire world is rational. If we only have the, 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 the mathematics to explain it, if we only are a little bit more advanced in science, and we're almost there. We're just waiting for that grant to come in from the, you know... You know, the, from 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 the government, and then we'll we'll be able because we've got some very promising research on um, on this particular project, which is um, what's the name of that project? Oh, well, it's, it's solving all the mysteries of life. Oh, okay. Well, good luck with that, because I'm sure that's going to be a success. Um, you know, it's like it's like it's not. Listen, this is very important. It's not that life. Okay, let's exhale for a moment. Regroup, because this is a very important point. We said that life is mysterious. And that it's not... The underpinnings of, of, of the way things are conducted are not rational. Now, here's the point I'm trying to make. That doesn't mean... It's irrational. It is not irrational. It is super-rational. That is a huge distinction. Huge distinction, and I'll explain it. Irrational means it doesn't make sense. Super-rational means it's beyond our finite minds to comprehend. But that it makes perfect sense, it's just that we aren't able 
to grasp its full meaning. Because we are finite and God is infinite. That's a very, very important distinction. So, so the, the enlightened one, quote-unquote, says that um, you are giving credence to forces in a way that doesn't, that doesn't logically make sense. But the truly enlightened person would say, no, I am incorporating my limitations in the face of the infinite one who has requested these activities, who's coming from the higher place. Now, let me, let me say that another way. I'm, I'm, in, I'm in having a conversation with someone, a very good-natured conversation, with a, uh, an old friend who recently got in touch with me, and is, you know, refers to himself as an atheist. And it, it, it occurred to me that, that part of the problem um, that happens is that when one, when, when one has an atheistic point of view, meaning to say that they're convinced that there's no God, um, what happens is, is that they start with the here and now. They start with what they can feel and what they can touch and what's in front of them. They start with their science books and with their math books and everything that can be proven. And they extrapolate from there. They go on from there. And then from there they have to get to a place of what? Like, to a place that can be proved, to a place that can't be proved. And that seems to be, to them, bad science or bad thinking. Because I'm starting in a place where I understand this table is made from a tree and the tree came from a seed and the seed came from a orange and the orange came from molecules and everything is very, very good, right? And then if you want to say, well, this invisible force made the molecules and that invisible force wants me not to work on the seventh day, then it all starts to sound very sort of like weird. You know? So I'm sympathizing, I'm empathizing with the scientific point of view. But it's coming from a problematic place, which is that they're starting with the here and now, and they're extrapolating back. Now, by the way, you can start with the here and now and extrapolate back and totally get to God 100%. But I'm trying to put myself in their shoes and their mode of thinking right now. So ultimately, that is not a problematic approach to finding God, by the way. But anyway, that aside. What, what, what I think makes more sense, though, is starting from God and working back to the here and now in the moment, which is... Where did the world come from, for goodness sakes? You know? You see, why am I here? You see, I, I think that there's, there are aspects of um, the way um, scientists and, and uh, uh, Darwinists, the way the way they, 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 they suggest the sort of the origin of the world and the origin of species in a way that, that feels to me very, very intellectually dishonest. And what I mean by that is that they'll say, well, the human being came from the ape who came from the, you know, from the four-legged creature that came from the swamp, that came from the single-celled, you know, organism. okay. Okay, so where did the single-celled organism come from? Where did time and space come from? Which are creations. Where did all of that come from? Where did the whole table that the food has been placed on come from? Where did the room that the table exists in come from? So it, it, so you have to posit a creator. Or, put in the Big Bang mode, it all started from a single spark which exploded. All well and good. But where did that spark and time and space come from? Where the spark happened? Where, where did all that come from? So you have to get to the standpoint of the Creator. 
then to me the real question becomes, okay, given the Creator, is the Creator involved in my life or not? Or did He create and go away? Because not to acknowledge a Creator seems to me to be intellectually dishonest. Either that, or they just take you to that the furthest point that they can go to, that they feel confident going to, and then they'll tell you, I don't know. Well then, what good is that? Because I also don't know. So, what do you know that I don't know? You don't know what I don't know. So, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't understand where the confidence of the denier comes from. You see... A lot of it comes from, it comes from a variety of different places. One place it comes from is um, is anger. Because people see injustice in the world, and they say, and they see hatred in the world, and they see war in the world, and they see the desecration of God's name done by religious people in the world, and they say, well, how can it be? If you're so religious, why are you leading that war and killing children, for goodness sakes? You know? So religion itself becomes discredited. So, so it's, 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 it's a horrible set of affairs. But the root reaction that comes from the denial of it is not that it's not plausible or reasonable that there be a creator. It's very plausible, it's very reasonable that there be a a creator. But, there's anger at that creator, because they look at the way the world is run, and they say, if that's that's the God, then what do I want to serve that God for? Yeah, go ahead. I think, I hear what you're saying about the anger, but I, I... You know, after long thought process, I think that it also comes from. It's much easier to deny a creator because uh, there's no commitment in my behalf. So you know, yes. it's an easy way out. Because yes. if it is a creator, then, then I have a purpose, and then I have to be committed yes. to a certain task. And I'd rather have the disbelief to a certain free. Yeah, and you know something? I, I'll tell you, I, I was going to get to that point, and so I totally agree with you. And you see. You're 100% right, and, and, and I heard a, a point on that just this, this past Shabbos that I thought was very interesting. You know, our, the, the, the Medrash teaches that before God gave the Torah to the Jewish people, he actually went to the children of Esav and the children of Yishmael and offered the Torah to them, and they both said no. They said they wanted to know what's in it first, which is, that in itself is a fascinating point, because the Jewish people said, meaning, we'll do it and then we'll hear Meaning to say that we said, God, you're good. Anything that comes from you is good. So the answer is yes. And now tell us what we just said yes to. And the non-Jewish world called the Jews, this is already in the Gomorrah, impetuous ones. You who said yes before you knew what you were saying yes to. Right? But we knew what we were saying yes to. We were saying yes to God. God is good. So why not say yes? You know? Um... You know, I remember I I once um, it, it, way back in my when I was much younger, not married. I, I I liked this girl, and I I wanted to I wanted her to go out on a date with me. And I had this event, and I thought I'm not going to ask her. Would you like to go out? I'm going to. So I said to her, listen. I have tickets to a black tie event. It's a beautiful dinner. There's a very, someone who's very famous who is speaking, a, a great literary personality. This person is speaking. It's at this very, very fancy club. Would you like to come? <laughs> you know, and, you know, that was... So he said yes. You know, I mean, but, you know, who would say no if I was like, you know, if I... If I was a frog, the person would have said yes, you know? I mean, there was no correlation between that person liking me at all and saying yes to that, that invitation, you know? So, but when God asked us, 
God is God, for goodness sakes, what do we, of course. But the other nations didn't say that. The other nations wanted to know what's in it. You know, you know I'll tell you a, 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 a sign of someone being a good friend. This is my own theory. I'm, I'm sure it's not 100% right, but it's, it's an indicator of something. If you go up to a person and you say to that person, can I ask you a favor? And the person says yes. Almost everyone will say back to you, what? <laughs> Almost everyone will respond, what? Someone who says yes back to you, that's, that's a big deal. It's a big deal. You know, because they are just willing to do anything. And usually, what you have in mind is probably not that big a deal. You know, so anyway, it's a small thing. But we said yes to God. The other nation said, what's in the Torah? So, so uh, when God said to the, uh, uh, the Ishmaelites, don't steal, they said, what do you mean don't steal? That's, that's how we make our living. So they turned it down. When, he, when, when the, the children of Edom, Esau, God said, don't kill. They said, don't kill. That's, that's, our, that's what we do. That's our foreign policy. That's how we conduct our... That's what we do. Now, now I heard a, a much deeper explanation of, of what that medrash meant. And it's, in, it's exactly what you just said. Which is that the Ishmaelites and the Edomites both had to have societies which function normally. Which means you can't have just stealing constantly because the society would fall apart. And you can't have killing constantly because the society would fall apart there. So in other words, both of those societies, each of them respected not stealing and not killing. So then, then how do you understand their response to God? And that they, Because listen, they didn't want there to be an objective criteria, an absolute explanation of what constitutes stealing and what constitutes killing. Because they wanted the ability to define those things themselves and to adjust it day to day as suited their interests. So today this is killing, but tomorrow, no, 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 that, yes, no, 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 that's not killing. Today I need this, so today this is, this is not killing. Do, do you follow? So, so people, people, the idea of surrendering as the ultimate authority, the ultimate moral authority on every single issue, to give that up, that's a massive, that's a massive act. That's a massive act. To say, God, you know, and there, that there's actually a, a moral structure to the universe that's embedded in the universe. You know, you should know, even the ancients, even the Greeks, for instance, and, and by the way, this has entered into even um, civil law in America through England and everything like that. It's a concept. I studied it at Harvard, actually. It's a, it's a concept called natural law. Natural law means that there's an appreciation that there are things, and this isn't coming from a religious point of view, by the way. Uh, ultimately, it is re- rooted in that, you know, but, but it's entered into just Western law, which is a concept that just the way the world works, this is just naturally right, this is not naturally right. I believe it's Sophocles, if I'm, I'm remembering back many, many years, I believe it's Sophocles who writes about, it's a Greek tragedy where they don't bury the dead in time. And, and it's the notion that you have to bury the dead by a certain time, and if you don't, you've, you've crossed natural law, and now you're subject to, to the wrath of the universe, if you will. So, so this idea that, that, that the world itself has morality imprinted in it is not just a Jewish concept. It's not just a Jewish concept. You see, you know, you, you find this in a very, very interesting way in terms of the um, discussion of what constitutes marriage today. Um, you know, what is the definition of marriage? Is it between a man and a woman? Is it, is it broader than that? What, what is it exactly? And you see an application of who will draw the line uh, in, in a question like this. And I, I'll, give you, I'll tell you what I mean by this. If you went to the most um, 
liberal. I mean, like, not I'm talking about left-wing, I'm talking about just radically left, right? And you said to them, you said to them, should there be any boundaries between who can get married, right? Probably, probably most people, and I'm not talking about the radical thinker right now, I'm just talking about sort of the more sort of contemporary uh, person who imagines themselves to be very, very open-minded and all the rest, they would probably tell you that a, a brother and sister should not get married in the traditional sense that we understand marriage to be. They would probably tell you that a, a father and a daughter should not get married in the traditional sense that we understand marriage to be. Right? In other words, in other words they, under, they, they themselves posit that there is a line that shouldn't be crossed in terms of marital relations. They themselves posit it. So, so, so now the conversation becomes different. So the more sort of like traditional people say, well, well, we say there's also a line. That line is, is that, that it should be between two members of the opposite sex. And they'll say, well, no. There is a line, but that's not where the line is. So now the question actually isn't, is there a line or is there not a line? Everyone agrees there is a line. The only question is, who gets to draw that line? Right? So, so, so the person who's a little bit more of, you know, who has a Masora, who has a tradition from previous generations and all the rest, going back to Mount Sinai, will tell you, well, God who made the whole universe, God expressed his will and he put it in the Torah and he, he told us how the whole world operates. And he told us where the line is, not just where the line is there, where the line is in a million different places. By the way, you should know something. Lest you think that that is the only place where the line exists in terms of love relationships, you should know on, a, on, a, on what we would say a, a heterosexual level between a man and a woman, there are Many different lines. Like, for instance, a Kohen cannot marry a divorcee. Right? Um, or a convert. So there you have a heterosexual relationship where the Torah is prohibiting, because of Torah law, a marriage with two people who absolutely are very religious and totally in love with each other. So that, I mean, the reason why I'm throwing that out is, is that it would, be a, um, it would be a lack of understanding to say, well, there's this hatred toward the, a, a same-sex type of um, relationship. But to understand on a, on a, on a, a more d- deep level that that, that that line is drawn even in the, in the realm of heterosexual affairs as well. So... I, I, I just think that, in fairness to to the Torah, one, one, one has to understand that it's 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 it, the, God is not picking on any one particular group. So then you can ask another question. As long as we're getting into the subject a little bit, how can it be that God should put a desire in someone's heart and then to frustrate that desire? Well, guess what? I have a desire for your Bentley. And you know what? There's a law in the books that says, Thou shalt not steal. So in other words, God puts many, many different desires into people's hearts. Not just in the realm of love or desire. In many, many, many different areas. You know, I, I really would like your piece of real estate. You know? I want to expand the property of my house and your lot is really standing in my way. You know, I mean, you can think of a zillion, a zillion examples of where people have different desires where the Torah says, well, you know, so where did that desire come from? Well, that also came from God. So now we understand something a little bit more fundamental about our job in this world which is, we say, Sur va va'aseh tov. 
resist from doing bad, and do good. Which means that God puts in our hearts the desire to do good, and also the desire to do bad. And what we have to do is, we have to withdraw from the desire to do bad, as defined by the Torah, and to actually overcome the obstacles, the laziness, to actually implement the good that's in our heart. So in other words, every single person has this. Every single person has things that they want to do. Man, I... You know something? The Torah calls pork delicious. You shouldn't say... It's not a Torah point of view to say, Ugh, pork, disgusting. That's not, that's not the Torah attitude. It says the following. Pork is delicious. But what can I do? My Father in Heaven told me not to eat it. We're not supposed to go, Ugh. And there's no problem whatsoever if someone who is not prohibited from eating pork enjoys pork. So God put it in the world for it to be enjoyed. But someone who desires it and who, you know, ah, well, you know, I'll tell you something else. You're not supposed to have a restaurant that sells non-kosher food. So what about the person who is a great chef? And he wants to own a restaurant. And he wants it, and he's not going to eat it himself. And he wants to serve, you know, non-kosher food and all the rest. That's very frustrating too. So, so, so let's get a little bit deeper. Let's get a little bit deeper. You see, you have to understand something. Each person is a microcosm of the universe. Each person is a micro, is a little world in themselves. As it says in the Talmud, if you save one person, it's like you save the whole world. So each person is like the world. Okay? Now, part of the problem is, in the world is, that all of the energies of the world are all mixed up. They're all warring with each other. They're all fighting with each other. In fact, Rebbe Nachman of Breslov said something very fascinating. He says that, you know, when families fight, they're reflecting the fight among nations of the world. That in other words, like a family is almost like a microcosm. And that the family can exhibit the dynamics of warring nations. So in other words, you have in Torah always microcosms, microcosms within microcosms, and things like this. So what we have to do is, also Rebbe Nachman says something very interesting. He says the three forces that people have that human beings have the hardest, the biggest trouble controlling, sex, food, and money. And if you think about it, for sure, for sure, people have been wrestling over these three desires since the beginning of time. And you know something? In fact, all of human drama are probably over these three things. If you think about it. And you know, a lot of times people think of the ancients the generations that have gone before us as primitive, because we're, we imagine them in loincloths and spears and things like that, which is odd. But anyway, that aside, that aside, when you realize that from the beginning of time, we've been, we've been sort of obsessing over and trying to control and, and, and all the rest and have been, you know, embroiled in dramas concerning sex, food, and money, you realize, you know what? A family that existed several thousand years ago is probably not so different from my family. A person who lived and struggled with those things, that's what I'm struggling with. So now you, just, you, you, you begin to appreciate that, that their culture was as sophisticated as our culture. So, okay, they didn't have Britney Spears, but it's hard to say that makes them less sophisticated. <laughs> um... Anyway, nothing against Britney Spears. Um, so the point is the following. The point is, is that there's, there, there's, there's a tremendous lack of harmony in the world because there are all of these desires and, and, and there's so much anger. You know, it says that the voice, the call, 
from Har Sinai, from Mount Sinai, never stopped. And I heard Rabbi Shlomo say in the name of Rabbi Nachman, the reason why you can't hear it is because anger makes the loudest sound in the world. This energy of anger is drowning out that call. That's why you can't hear it. I heard Reb Shlomo say that, technically speaking, scientifically speaking, you should be able to hear the sound of a monkey in China. But there's so much anger in the world, it drowns out everything. Now, the way I understand that, it's not that someone is yelling, and so because of the yelling you can't hear the monkey. That, that's not the point. That could also be the point. But the, the point is that, I'm talking about on an energy level. That anger emits such a cloud, it just, it blocks things, it, it covers things. Envy, jealousy, murder, theft, all of these things, they're blocking up everything. So, so what's the point? The point is, returning, returning to this idea, this very core idea, is, is that each person is a little world. And every single person has been given desires which run against the Torah. Every person has been given desires. Every single person. Every single person. You know what it says in the Gemara? It says the bigger the tzaddik, the bigger that person's Yetzahara is. If you feel as though you're growing in mitzvahs and you're growing spiritually and you still really want that, whatever it is, that's not a contradiction. It's the opposite. It's an affirmation. It's an affirmation. Your Yetzirah grows with your spiritual growth. It's in the Gemara. You can look it up. People think, well, wait a second. I'm doing more of this and I'm doing more of that. Why do I'm still thinking about that? It's not a contradiction. It's not a contradiction at all. So the, the point is, is that every single person has has had implanted, but it's different areas of life, in their heart, things they're not supposed to do. Whether it's destructive things, whether it's sexual things, whether it's money-related things, whatever it is, everyone's got them. And some people have been given a double dose, or a triple dose, or a quadruple dose. And that's very hard. But it's in every single field. And no one is exempt from this. Then they've been given the good things that they're capable of doing to improve the world. But you know what they've also been given in that realm? The great gift of laziness. You know, I'll tell you, and, and that inhibits that. That inhibits that. That's just one blockage. There are other blockages. That, so, in other words, so, so David Amalek says so succinctly, refrain from bad, do good. Sums it all up. Now, if someone can balance those energies in themselves, and this is the point, you have to balance those energies in yourself, you have to harmonize yourself, And that harmonizes the world around you. And to the extent that we can all put ourselves and the energy and the warring energies in ourself in harmony, we bring the balance on a cosmic, on a more global level, we bring those energies into balance as well. People refrain from bad and they do good. All of a sudden, all the blockages, all the the static begins to disappear. And all of a sudden the call, right? The call, the voice from Harsina can be heard. So this is all of us. There's something that I noticed while we're on the subject. You know, Adam and Chava in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, had uh, had two mitzvahs to basically to work and to tend the garden. And the way the rabbis understand that is that that was, in that contained all the positive mitzvahs of the Torah and all the negative mitzvahs of the Torah. 
in their own way, they had that whole thing. And it says, if you look at the language of the Torah, something I noticed, it said, do good, the positive was first, and the refrain from bad was second. And after we ate from the eight sadas, the tree of knowledge, and the whole world went into exile, they got flipped. Now it's refrain from bad and do good. But before there was sort of like an initial kind of lowering of the spirituality of humanity and of the world, the primary thing was to do good. And the secondary thing was to refrain from bad. Now that everything has been thrown upside down and inside out, the primary thing is actually to refrain from the bad. That's why, believe it or not, there's 613 mitzvahs in the Torah. 365 of them are thou shalt nots. Because the primary avoda, the primary service is to desist from the bad, but of course to do the good. And, you know, we have to do all of them. I mean, it's not... But I'm just talking on a more philosophical level right now. They're all binding. We have to do all of them as best we can. That's something that's imprinted in our souls. Yeah. Everyone's been dealt a different hand. Everyone's been dealt a different hand what their challenges are, what their taivas or lusts, we say, are, in what category of living they fall into. All of these things. All of these things. We have, we have all of these different uh, things. Everyone gets dealt a different hand. Everyone gets dealt a different hand. And, um, and everyone's got challenges. Now, you know, why do you get the challenges that you get? That, that would be the next question. Well, someone says, okay, so I understand I get challenges. I understand everyone gets challenges and I understand everyone gets them in different categories. I accept it. But why did I have to get these? So, so then, you know, then we get into deeper sorts of areas. Past lives has a lot to do with it. What one needs to accomplish in this world. What one has to fix. All, for future generations, for also to set an example for other people in the community. One of the deepest things I heard... Sometimes someone will get a test. Listen to this. A very, very hard test. Like, chas v'shalom, we shouldn't know from it. Like a sickness, for instance, or something else like this. Or Because God knows they're able to withstand that test, that they're going to pass that test, and they will be an inspiration for other people in the community who get that test to know that they'll be able to pass that test because this person in the community was able to get through that. So sometimes the idea that a person goes through a, 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 a very difficult test is because not what did I do wrong, it's what are you going to do right? It's actually a tremendous expression of confidence in you that you're going to be up to it that you're going to pass it, and that other people are going to go through it, and they're going to, they're going to say, hey, you know how Joe, or, 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 or whoever, you know, went through that? You're going to get through it too. And the person in their heart goes, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. They went through the same thing, and they did get through it. And you know what? I am going to get through it. So, that, that, that I think is, is interesting. Why, why people get certain tests, you know? Um... So, so anyway, you know, I was talking about it, um, I think maybe the hardest thing about dealing with life's problems is You see, if God is openly revealing himself during a test, then it's not so hard because you go, well, all right, well, you're God and, and I feel you, I feel your presence and, and I know if you're there, I can get through it. But then there's another category, which is much, much, much harder, which is my life is really hard right now. 
And God, I can't feel you at all. And I don't feel as though that you're involved in my life at all. Which makes me feel like every hardship I'm going through right now is ultimately meaningless. And that's when it gets really tough. That's when it gets really, really tough. So the first thing that a person has to understand, and we've talked about it before, I like to call it bad math, which is, we, many of us, maybe even most of us, make the following equation, consciously or unconsciously, usually unconsciously, which is, God is in my life to the extent that I feel His presence. And that's completely incorrect. God is in your life no matter what. (laughs) You're alive precisely because God is in your life. In fact, let's take it even further. You're alive because God is in you. (laughs) You don't have to even go to your life. God is animating you. So God has a front row seat in your life. In fact, He's got not better than front row seat. He's backstage. Right? He's inside of you. So, yeah, not only is he there, he's, he's really there. He's really, really, really there. So God sees absolutely, God sees absolutely everything. So a person has to understand that. You see, the whole story of Purim, and we're coming up on Purim very soon, we're going to blink and it's going to be Purim. Coming up on Purim. And um, you should know, Purim is the, as far as I'm concerned, it's the holiday. The holiday. And maybe, even if I can say something so grandiose sounding, maybe the holiday of our generation. And the reason why I say that is because it's all about how God is there when you think He's not there. And, And all of us, I think, feel that more in our present day than, than we felt it in, in many previous generations. Because through the Holocaust and through the post-Holocaust and through the falling apart of the infrastructure of the, of the Torah community, which sustained the Jewish people for, you know, since Harsinai, for it to fall apart in the way that it has and so many sort of errant theologies to enter into, into what's called Judaism, you know, that isn't really a proper understanding of the way we've practiced Torah since, since the Torah was given. It just, it's confusing and it's undermined so many different aspects of our understanding. So Purim is all about God is there. God is 100% there. So just, where does it come from? Where does Esther's name come from? So the Gemara asks, you know, where, 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 where do you see the word Esther in the Chumash? And of course, Purim happened historically after the five books. But we also know that everything is in the five books. So certainly Purim has to be there. Certainly, Esther has to be there. So it says, Haster, Aster, Panim, that God, God's hiddenness will be hid. In other words, there's a double hiddenness that she represents. What does that mean? Imagine, you know, there's someone in the house, but he's hiding. But he's in the house, but he's hiding. You don't know where he is. You can't find him because he's hiding, but he's in the house. You know that. But what if his hiddenness is hidden? You don't even know that he's hiding. You don't even begin to look because you don't even know that he's there. That's this generation. That's where we're at. That's where we're at. So many people, they're... And, 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 and what's the biggest irony in the entire world? Have you ever heard the phrase hiding in plain sight? You know, I always like to give the example of two fish having a conversation with, them, with, with each other. And one fish says to the other fish, do you believe in water? Right? Think about the question. Right? And the other fish says back, I don't know if I believe in water. My grandfather was very religious. He believed in water. (laughs) Meanwhile, there's nothing but water. That's the only thing that's there. Literally the only thing that's there. But because it's so there, you can't even see it. So, so this is Hashem. On the one hand, His hiddenness is hidden, 
We don't even know to look. On the other hand, every single thing in the world testifies to his presence. It says that in Devarim. It talks about, it's in the, um, in the Tochachas, it says that, that basically, when it's talking about it, you know, the, the consequences of, of not, not keeping the Torah, it says that God, even his, will hide his face. And so, it, and it talks about this double hiding. This double hiding. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Now, you said we have the Neshama. Yeah. That's a part of God. That yes. is God. It's a, part, it's a part of God. It's, it's, it's in every single one of us. Correct. Now, God also wrote the Torah... Correct. ...before anything was ever made. Correct. Before the world was created. But then we hear that we have the freedom of choice. Correct. So how does the freedom of choice affect what has already been pre-planned? Okay, our, so... Is our freedom of choice making us right. do what the Torah already said we were going to do? Okay, so listen, so I'm, I'm going to tell you something, because I was just learning this in the, in the Gomorrah. Um, and uh, and uh, there's an amazing discussion. Actually, I, I would like to do a whole talk on it to take you through the back and forth of the Gomorrah. An amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Um, an amazing, amazing, amazing thing. Reish Lakish says... We should thank the people who worship the golden calf. We should thank them because if they didn't do that, we wouldn't exist today. Meaning to say that we would have become like angels and then children, they wouldn't have had children. So we wouldn't exist if they hadn't worshipped the golden calf. So we should thank them. Okay? So now the rabbis are like, really? (laughs) Wait a second. Is that really true? And there's a discussion, a back and forth that's absolutely unbelievable that happens. Okay? Now, in the end, they say, no, 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 we would still be here. We would still be here. Even if they hadn't worshipped the Gordon Cap, we would still be here. Okay. But, one of the things that, that, they, that, they, uh, that the rabbis bring up in terms of attacking this premise, that there wouldn't be any children born because we would have become like angels. Okay? And it's attacked on, on, on a variety of different levels. But one particular attack is, in the Torah, you see we have the mitzvah of Yibum. What is Yibum? If, and we should know from this, if a man marries a woman, and the woman doesn't have any children, right? And then the man dies. There is a mitzvah that his brother should marry the woman so that they can have children and that will perpetuate the neshama of the dead brother who never had children. And then if for a variety of circumstances the woman doesn't want to marry the man, the other brother, right? Then they have a service called chalitza where, where it's that, that um, obligation is canceled out. Okay? But... You see here the idea of the, 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 this mitzvah arranged so that more children can be born, right? right? So they say, well, wait a second. If there wasn't supposed to be any more children, after, if, if the sin of the golden calf hadn't happened and we would have become like angels, how do you have a mitzvah in the Torah, which means we should have more children? Through Yibum, right? right. Are you following? Yeah. Is everyone following? So in other words... Bless you. In other words, just to say it very simply, it would seem that written in the Torah is a mitzvah in order to have more children. So, so how can you say children would not have been born if we, if, if we hadn't worshipped the golden calf? Do, do you hear? Everyone hears? So it, it seemingly we should have had, continued to have children. Okay. So the rabbis answer, oh, that was written Conditionally. And that wouldn't have been a mitzvah if we hadn't worshipped the golden calf. We would have been like angels. And then that mitzvah would not have existed. It was written conditionally. Now, I see wide eyes, which, is the, which was the response of the rabbis, actually, to that answer. And they said, the mitzvah was written conditionally? 
Is there any mitzvah that's written conditionally? And now we get to understand something very, very, very deep. Okay? They respond in the following way. Or maybe it's the Mephorshim, whatever it is. The explainers, they, they, they respond in the following way. Very, very interesting. Okay. Everybody knows that the Torah was created before the world was created. That doesn't mean that there was a scroll floating in the sky or a book floating in the sky before time and space were created. That's not what that means. The Torah, as we explained, is the will of God. Now, one's will, God's will for his creation, existed before he made the world. In other words, to give a very simple example, let's say um, I desire a sofa for my living room. And I know I'm going to put it over there. And I know I want it to be certain colors to match the other things in the room. So in other words, even before that sofa exists, because I haven't gone and picked it out yet, I already have a desire for it. I already know what I want it to, it to be like. I already know what I, I want its measurements to be. So God's will for the world, how he wanted the world conducted, existed before he made the world. That will, that desire for the world, and the particulars of how he wanted it, that was the Torah as it existed before the world was created. And then when he made the world, then that will found its shape and its form and it became manifest in all sorts of different ways. Okay? That's the Torah before the world was created. Now, God looked at the way we behaved and he molded, he molded that will which existed beforehand in order to fit who we were. Okay? So there's no, the Torah wasn't changed. I want to be very, very explicit here. The Torah itself wasn't changed because the Torah existed before the world was created. But how God was going to implement His will was in certain instances dependent on us and the way we behaved. So, for instance, to give a very basic example of a a parent-child type of thing, the parent says, you know what? If you behave, we're going to Disneyland. If you don't behave, we're not going to Disneyland. <laughs> the child behaves. Then what's the next chapter in the book? A whole description of the trip to Disneyland. The child does it's okay. The child the child doesn't behave. What's the whole next chapter? The child sitting in his room very sort of <laughs> angry about not going to Disneyland. Okay, so there are certain sections in the Torah the rabbis are telling us on a very deep level that unfolded or didn't unfold based on us and our level, but that the primary will didn't change. That that was the same and that existed even before the world was created. So, so in order to answer the question about, about whether there would be had been more children or not, and that mitzvah of Yibu, they said, well, if we hadn't made that mistake with the sin of the golden calf, then we wouldn't have needed that. That was only there in place in case we did make a mistake. And that mitzvah was needed in order to elevate us and pick us up and to address us and our moral needs and the needs of the world at that stage in history. If we had made the mistake, then we need then we would have needed that mitzvah. Okay. I hope that's clear. That's a, that's a very sort of deep subject. But anyway. Um, well, any other questions? Everyone's free to leave. <laughs> uh, Where does that discussion more take place? Do you know, um, you know I've, I've, been in, I've been kind of dipping into a couple of different mesechtas recently. It's, it, I think it's in, a, I think it's in a, a Vodazor. I believe in... It's in a Vodazor. It is.
Around page seven. Yeah, yeah. yeah go ahead. Uh, um, going back a few minutes to where you were talking about yeah. the flipping of the order of the mitzvahs um, in the garden when they got it. Yes. Then also, well, when uh, Moses got the first set of Ten Commandments, yeah. they were like positive. And then when he asked for the golden calf and went back up, is that correct? They, they came, you shall not. Well, well, they were all mixed together. You had positive and negative ones in the Ten Commandments. Like the very first one, the very first commandment is, I'm God, you should believe in me. At least according to the Rambam, that's a mitzvah to believe in God, the first commandment. And the second one is, don't, thou shalt not have other gods before me. So it's, a, it's against idol worship. I'm talking about uh, the break. He came down and broke the tablet, threw the tablet down, those tablets. I'm talking about the same tablets. Yeah. So the in the, so in the in the original set of tablets, there were positive and negative commandments. But you're right in saying, and you're making a very very good point here. You're right in saying that the very first was a positive, and the second one was a negative, which which actually supports what I was saying. Believe it or not, because because. It said that when we were at Mount Sinai, we had gone back to the level of Adam before he ate from the eight sadas, which means which means that the proper balance of positive before negative should have been restored, and as you're pointing out, it was in fact restored. Uh, yeah. There was this part two to this question. Okay. Um, the breath of Haggadah, the Passover, uh-huh. yes. has a statement in it that. Um, and I haven't seen this for a while, but I, and I might be misconstruing it, but um, I thought it was that um, the whole Passover was supposed to be a redemption for uh, the garden, and what uh, Adam and Eve did in the garden. Yeah. I, I'll have to find that. No, it, 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 I, mean, it, I never understood it is, what that it, it is, but you have to understand that the redemption from Egypt was just the first stage of that. Okay. You see, what, what we've lost, especially in, in, in contemporary society, especially in secular society, we've lost the understanding that Pesach and Shavuos are really one holiday. They're two halves of one holiday. We left Egypt in order to get the Torah. We didn't leave Egypt in order to do whatever we wanted to do. God was bringing us out of Egypt in order to give us the Torah. You see, so, 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 so had, we, had we not sinned with the golden calf, then that would have been the rectification of, of Adam and Eve. Not just the taking out of Egypt. The receiving of the Torah without the golden calf would have been the final rectification. But we blew it, basically. Um, okay, have a great week. Thank <laughs> you.